Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. Dr. Todd McMullen is a scientist and endocrine surgeon at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Alberta. In this episode, we talk to Dr. McMullen about a topic that is sometimes a pain in the neck for trainees, thyroid nodules. Dr. McMullen gives us his approach to nodules, how he works them up, a brief overview of how he does his thyroidectomies, and post-op calcium management. We hope you enjoy. Well, first of all, thank you very much, Dr. McMullen, for uh, joining us on Cold Steel, uh, the CJS podcast. Uh, it's, a, it's a real pleasure to have you, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll say out of the gate and, and all, all disclosure to our listeners, I've known you for a very, very long time. Uh, I think we knew each other before we even knew we knew each other, just growing up in Edmonton and, and working in various establishments over the years. So it's, it's great to have you on. Thank you. Happy, happy to be here, Chad. And yes, we, we do have a few stories between us going back a few years now. Yeah, we'll we'll try and keep those out of the podcast for for the best uh, for the for the good of all, so to speak. Um, for for those of uh, um, the country maybe that are listening that that might not know you as well as uh, as well as I do, tell us where you grew up. Tell us where you did your training, um, and what that pathway was like. So I grew up in uh, pretty much exclusively in Alberta, but not in one center. We did move around a little when I was younger. Uh, we, my family were farmers and in the oil patch, like so many people in Alberta. And so we did move to different places in small town, Alberta, where, where the, the oil patch was uh, growing in different places. Uh, and as I entered into university, I started at the University of Alberta, where I did uh, a PhD in biochemistry. At that time, I was leaning a little bit more towards the research career. I actually went to Virginia. I had a fellowship uh, and uh, did some work at the University of Virginia in the medical school there doing some research. And then I was working in New Jersey, uh, actually just outside New York, uh, with a pharmaceutical firm. I had a, a job with a pharmaceutical firm for a little while. And at that point, I made the decision I wanted to uh, move a little bit closer to the to the personal and the human side of research. I felt that uh, the the industrial elements of it were a little bit more about budgets and and um, I just I wanted to change gears so at that point I applied to medical school I went to medical school actually in Toronto so I did my medical my initial medical training in Toronto then did a, a residency in general surgery in Edmonton I came back to Edmonton it has a, it has an excellent reputation for getting your hands uh, on a lot of cases and so I came back to Edmonton and that was definitely the case and following along that uh, along that line with heavy case volumes and exposure I chose a fellowship in endocrine surgery uh, in Sydney Australia where they have uh, they have a, a fantastic uh, fellowship the TS Reeve a fellowship in endocrine surgery, and so I went there for a year, and then came back to Edmonton to practice. That's great. The, there's no doubt the the Reeve Fellowship. I think everyone in, within general surgery knows about that fellowship. T- tell us what that was like 
maybe it's uh, your perception to train as a fellow in Australia compared to maybe if you had, say, stuck it out in Canada or the U.S. for your fellowship training? I think the the centers that offer endocrine uh, surgical training in Canada, the U.S., or Australia uh, are all excellent. Uh, the, what I liked about Australia uh, was obviously uh, the fellowship itself was well established. They had outstanding preceptors, and they were dedicated, uh, as most excellent fellowship programs require, they were dedicated to the fellows, both in terms of an academic sense, but also giving you that uh, that ability to, to to teach you how to operate. And in Australia, they've got a little bit of a different system compared to Canada. It's more of a, a dual system with private and public. The benefit as a fellow in that environment is that the surgeons have a lot more access to operating time than typically they do in a Canadian center would be as an example, where most surgeons work at maybe one or two sites. But in Australia, they'll often work at three or four different sites. And so they're operating a lot more. And so you are along for the ride. And when they're are that many cases to do uh, because there's an opportunity to operate almost every day. Um, you know, your volumes are exceptional. It's, it's, I think it's really tough to imagine a, a fellowship program that could match the volume and the breadth of experience that, uh, that I received in Sydney. It's, it's, it was fantastic. Sydney is a gorgeous city and, and obviously they had a big program with uh, three dedicated endocrine surgeons and they had a dedicated um, endocrine pathologist who was fantastic. And so, again, I, that element of uh, the sheer number of cases as well as the, the academic setup made it, uh, you know, fantastic. And it was a one-year fellowship. And so they, they encourage publications, but they, you, they encourage, um, you know, you're, you're able to do everything in one year. Yeah, that sounds great. It's, it's amazing how frequently the, the guests that we have on, uh, on the podcast talk about the quality of fellowship being linked to overall operative volume. I think we know that intuitively, you know, even as, as residents, but it is so critical. There's no doubt. Um, what, what drew you, Todd, to, to the field of endocrine? What, what did you like about it? I think, I, again, as most people might, uh, most surgeons uh, in their career, and they look back at what were the things that influenced them. I mean, I had a mentor in David Williams who was um, uh, a head and neck, uh, a more traditionally head and neck oncology trained uh, general surgeon, and he did a lot of thyroid work as well as uh, work in the oral pharynx. And he had introduced me to uh, thyroid surgery and uh, I, you know, obviously because it had an oncology piece, it fit in with a little bit of my research background. So that was, that was, I think, um, definitely a plus. And so I saw the oncology elements of thyroid surgery and I was very interested in, in that element of it. And it's technical. There's some very interesting technical pieces to, uh, thyroid surgery and there's some smaller procedures as well as bigger ones with neck dissections and, and uh, with my endocrine practice, it is definitely a, a full endocrine practice. So I do adrenals, I do neuroendocrine tumors. So there's there's everything from a thyroidectomy to the radiobiology of the treatment of neuroendocrine tumors and lutetium therapy or gallium 68, um, the, the new diagnostic work we're doing. And so there, it had a breadth to it. Like I, uh, like again, most I think surgeons look for a little bit of different, look for a bit of variation, small and big. And uh, yeah, so that's what. Uh, that's what took me there. And I could link my research. I was interested in oncology research. And so that's what I, uh, the path I, I chose. Yeah, you've, seen, you've touched on your research a, a few times uh, already. And that's how a lot of us in the country certainly think of you as a, as a busy researcher um, in the lab as well. And I, I was 
curious if you could run us through kind of the evolution of your of your basic science or your laboratory side of things and in particular as that's evolved what some of the stresses have been and what some of the pleasures have been and then as you and I were just talking about uh, before starting the maybe the commercialization aspect good and bad of that yeah so um research has always been something that's uh, interested me and and I looked at a clinical career as a way to to try to blend a little bit of clinical practice with a research a research uh, program the research i worked on in um for an oncology uh, company in new jersey uh, was something on interleukins and looking at uh, metastatic disease and so it was very natural um uh, sort of organic growth into thyroid cancer. Why does it spread? What are the mechanisms that drive uh, lymphatic metastases? And so that's that's sort of where I uh, moved to. And most of my research is very it's very mechanistic. It's it's a benchtop work. Lots of genetics, um, looking at why tumors spread to lymph nodes. And of course, thyroid cancer is an excellent example of that. But it applies to other cancers as well. As I've gone further on, I found more fundamental mechanisms that apply not just to thyroid cancer but other endocrine and other non-endocrine cancers the challenges i think um aren't aren't hard to see when you are trying to balance both a clinical and a research career um time is your is your big um you've got you've got to put time in in both both of them and being a surgeon when you work weekends and nights and uh, trying to manage a lab at the same time, trying to get funding in a super competitive environment where um, everybody has a great idea and you're competing against PhDs with big labs who've got a lot of time, a lot of trainees. Um, you, you've just, you've got to be so focused and and dedicated to what you do. You have to love what you do or you won't survive. I think that's the, that's if I had to pass one thing on to the trainees that that look to my experience and they look to careers in research and, and surgery I say as long as you love what you do you'll you'll find the time and I shouldn't I don't want to make it sound like you can't do it with surgery because there are some great things about surgery and and there are times you um, you know you can block off days of the week and things to do it but you know you have to be dedicated to it for sure did you could you tell us a little bit about the whole commercialization piece of of, of your work yeah so that's a challenge too but something that I'm very interested in I I learned early on that there's you're you're as an academic and a lot of the manuscripts you write you're trying to sell an idea but in commercialization you're trying to sell a product and it's a there are a whole bunch of steps between uh create you know trying to uh fine tune an idea and then developing a product from that and so I've learned um I've you know I've had some excellent experience and again mentors in the business field that have helped as we've you know, move through the commercialization aspect of it. And certainly in Alberta, which I don't think most people would recognize as having a huge uh, healthcare industry, there are, there are absolutely, I think, um, opportunities for commercialization and there are programs to help people bridge that gap between the funding gap between, you know, taking your idea and those research ideas and then scaling it up and testing it in a way that, that um, you know, when you put your, you know, when you you have a product, it's it's ready to go, it's tested, it's it's going to work every time. And I have a lot of respect for industry, um, and what uh, healthcare industry and how the there are so many different things that 
that you just don't think about um, whether you're a consumer or a scientist uh, in industry. There's no room for there's no room for error. You're you're not allowed to make any um, you know there's no mistakes. Uh, no no you don't cut corners. It's got to work. It's got to work every time. And so I've learned a lot about the commercialization piece. And there, it is a bit of a challenge in Canada in some respects compared to some of the larger centers in on the west coast or east coast of the United States. But uh, having said that, it can still be done. You've got a good idea. You, you know, people will come to it. There is there is funding for it. There are a lot of fantastic uh, people that I didn't realize, a lot of philanthropists that... Uh, that aren't looking to make money. They're just looking for that good idea. They want to make a difference. And those people are out there. And uh, those are the people that you need to help you along the way. You know, given that uh, at some point in my life, I'm going to write uh, that little quiz. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wanted to talk about the the ever-present incidental thyroid nodules, uh, which seems to be a, like a hot topic on uh, on exams. Um, and I wanted to take a step back and, and just have you talk to us a little bit about like wh- how big of a, a problem is this whole incidental thyroid nodule on a sort of population health level. And, and I'm sort of thinking of some of the studies out of South Korea where they showed that we've just been picking up exponential numbers of these incidental nodules without really a change in, in mortality from thyroid cancer. That's an excellent question. And it, 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 it again, blends into a lot of the questions that researchers like myself are trying to answer. What's that perfect marker for uh, for identifying, you know, genetically or on a fine needle aspiration biopsy or um, what, what, what are, the, what are the, the genetic signals or things that indicate, you know, this is going to be a problem for a patient or, or what isn't? And so you're absolutely right. I mean, that magic, um, you know, that magic chemical or protein hasn't been found yet so now we have to we have to rely on you know population studies and i think it's it's very clear now that we have a increasing incidence of of thyroid nodules and it's probably in large part due to the increased use of ultrasound and the sensitivity of ultrasound um when i trained we I trained to, to use ultrasound. The machines were somewhat bulky and didn't provide the resolution that now handheld very small ultrasounds that that many physicians carry in their office. And certainly, I do all my own ultrasound in my office. I find uh, a very high number of of nodules that are probably you're right, not clinically relevant. So I think to your point, it's very clear now that a lot of thyroid nodules are are not clinically relevant. We don't have to use the old paradigms where nodules meant surgery. And I think um, that in the last year, and there have been excellent articles, you're right, there was the big study out of South Korea. Because they have a very large screening program involving ultrasound and thyroid, they're probably the most uh, intensive um, ultrasound of the ultrasound use in a population in the world. And so that's how that came to be. But the similar studies have been done in, in the United States and Canada. Uh, for sure. And so I think that we do have to revise our, our approach to thyroid nodules, especially the small nodules. And you're starting to see that. You're starting to see uh, less surgery, more um, active surveillance, even for thyroid cancers themselves. I want to come back to that in a little bit. But let's say, you know, you know, you get the common exam scenario or, or you know, frankly, real life scenario that, that many general surgeons face around the country. Uh, let's say you have a 50-year-old female who... Um, uh, unfortunately had to meet Dr. Ball uh, one night on the trauma service and uh, was incidentally found to have uh, a 
two centimeter thyroid nodule on a CT scan. How do you approach that patient? Well, absolutely. And uh, once Dr. Ball has, has done uh, his work and, and made that patient uh, safe for me to see, um, uh, again, you're right, it's absolutely a common scenario. And so um, uh, despite all the advances in genetics and, and gene chips, uh, the history and physical can go a long way to, to determining whether that's, uh, that nodule is, is going to have a detrimental effect on that patient or not. Uh, step one, of course, is, you know, the, the history of the nodule. Is it something that came on very quickly? Is it something, the personal history for the nodule, is it something that's grown very quickly? Is it something they've recognized, uh, perhaps a while ago, but didn't, you know, didn't think anything of it? Um, uh, and obviously in this case, we're assuming it wasn't growing quickly. Obviously the things you'd want to know about was there are any difficulties with swallowing a change in their voice. The voice change is actually something that's very important and, and very specific in indicating a potential aggressive malignancy. Um, so that's very important to ask. You also want to ask about their family history of thyroid cancer. There's some excellent, uh, excellent studies looking at, uh, familial, um, relationships and in terms of having, siblings, first-degree or second-degree relatives with thyroid cancer, and there's a known increase in risk, especially for first-degree um, relatives, so siblings, uh, their mother, their father, for example. It, they're, depending on the number, it can be anywhere between, you know, two to five times higher risk for thyroid cancer for those patients. And I guess the final thing that everybody knows about, of course, uh, thanks to Chernobyl, would be radiation exposure. Um, that's a common uh, theme. I, I've had many patients, more than I uh, would have ever imagined, that come from from Europe and years ago were concerned about exposure to radiation as a result of that event. And, and of course there's been other events around the world since then, but um, radiation exposure may also lead to an increased risk of thyroid cancer. There's lots of studies on that. Although it's very interesting is that the, there's not a, a very clear dose response um, rate in terms of the amount of radiation you receive. Obviously it is important, but it's more, what's equally important and perhaps even more important is how old you were when you were exposed. If you're exposed at a young age to to radiation, that may be a particularly higher risk for for cancer. And those are the historical features. And of course, with the physical exam, when you if they don't have any voice changes or otherwise fine, you you want to assess it for fixation. Most benign or benign or even um, uh, relatively indolent thyroid cancers would be mobile, relatively soft nodules. It's the hard fixed not fixed nodule that is the most concerning. And so from that point, you would, uh, again, I think for the purpose of the exam, so anybody that's practicing for, you know, their exam, whenever you're right, whenever it does happen, which hopefully this will, this will pass soon for you guys uh, in fifth year, the, uh, you know, an ultrasound is still an excellent uh, or is an excellent modality and getting even better at discriminating between benign and malignant uh, neoplasms. And that's a big change in my practice. That's something I use. A lot more. I, I rely more and more on the the thyroid, um, so-called TIRADS uh, imaging uh, scoring system. So it's an imaging and reporting data system, just like uh, BIRADS for breast. And it's um, becoming more and more, even in the last uh, two years, uh, more and more useful discriminating benign from malignant uh, neoplasms. And you can even use that to decide whether you're going to choose to biopsy. And I certainly do in my practice. Now you will see some variations depending on. Um, you know, the volume of practice and, and different scenarios. But for, for me, when I ultrasound, um, I, you know, I use the TIRADS criteria. I assess 
its risk for malignancy. And I don't always biopsy nodules, even if they're two centimeters, um, if I think that they look, um, uh, they look, uh, they have a really low scar score on the TIRAD system. That's not necessarily. You have to be careful for an exam setting. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously that's a little bit of a deviation. I think most people might think to, um, that it's appropriate and reasonable to biopsy a two centimeter lesion after you do your ultrasound. But for me, because I see so many nodules and I think a lot of people have multiple nodules, um, looking outside of this particular case, it's not unreasonable to use ultrasound to stratify a risk. And I think you'll see more of that in the future. Can you talk a little bit about what features you look for on ultrasound? Because I think that uh, that's becoming increasingly important, as you say. Oh, absolutely. And so um, not to um, put uh, the listeners to sleep uh, listing off the tirad scoring criteria, but I think the major features, the things that you have to look for would be um, the, the most relevant things on an ultrasound report that um, that you want to look for, things like microcalcifications. That's a really important one. It's one of the biggest um, predictors of um, of malignancy. You want to look at irregular margins. If it looks like it's irregular or lobulated, those types of features um, are definitely linked strongly to, to malignancy. Uh, taller than wide is another one for sure, and hypoechogenicity. So if it's uh, very hypoechoic, um, and looks a lot darker than the surrounding thyroid parenchyma when you're scanning with your ultrasound. Those are the, if you put those together, you've got a very high risk of malignancy. Uh, I'm actually curious, do you put a TIRAD score on your consult notes? Like if you're, see someone in the, in the office and you do their ultrasound, do you, do you quote a TIRAD score? So traditionally before, well, I, about uh, two years ago, uh, when uh, I started using it exclusively, I wasn't putting scores on, but now I am. And for and for trainees, I would say this is important. The the way the college looks at things, and this is a very you know specific point, for medical legal reasons, I think it's if you're if you're using ultrasound to stratify and you're deviating from what the standard of care may be, and that of course is a moving target. Um, it's not an unreasonable thing to 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 be very detailed in your documentation, and even getting an, a separate ultrasound report from a you know one of your ultrasound. Um, local ultrasound sites that, that provides that level of detail because you want to be able to go back. No, I didn't biopsy because, um, you know, my TIRAD score was very low. If you don't provide that detail, then I think that that's, it's, uh, if something, if that did end up being a cancer or, or then that might be, um, you know, a problem if you don't show that you took the proper steps to, to stratify it as best you could. All right, so moving on from the, the history and the physical and the, the ultrasound, what are your next steps in, in working up, uh, uh, let's say, a, a nodule that seems uh, indeterminate on, on ultrasound? Uh, what, sure, what are your sure. next uh, steps? Yeah, so uh, I think it's uh, in most cases. So unless they had uh, no risk factors, it's uh, no reason to um, to be concerned on physical exam and they... The, in most cases, you, I, I think with a, a nodule two centimeters in size, especially somebody 50 year old, that's she's 50 year old or relatively young, that's a long time for something to change. Um, uh, you know, obviously the finding laceration biopsy, uh, which would be done under ultrasound guidance, that's the standard now. I don't think anybody does them without having an ultrasound probe on the on the nodule at the same time. You get much better sampling when you have the probe on. You can. Uh, look for uh, the nodule, make sure you uh, properly sample it. You would do the FNA, absolutely. 
any other uh, investigations you do, like, um, let's say, TSH or technician? Oh, plans? sure. Yeah, so, of course. So, I mean, obviously, um, I made the assumption, uh, perhaps a dangerous one, that she was not hypo or hyperthyroid, but absolutely, for exam purposes, you want to assess their, their um, whether they're thyrotoxic. Of course, a thyroid toxic nodule is much less likely to be malignancy. You may not choose to do a biopsy in, in that particular circumstance. Uh, and that's where, that's the only time I would order, you know, functional uh, or an uptake, a technician uptake scan would be um, if they were thyrotoxic, if their TSH was suppressed and they didn't recognize that, um, which would be unlikely, but it, it can happen if they're just mildly uh, suppressed, for example. Uh, but other than that, um, you don't have to, I don't, I don't routinely order, for example, CT scans for thyroid nodules or even for thyroid cancers unless there's other features of it if it's much more aggressive but though that's your basic workup gotcha and and then i think this is this segues nicely into to talking about let's say you, you get your your fna result back uh you, you're you're given all these different uh things back aus plus all these these uh things that uh confuse trainees to no end can you walk us through the bethesda classification for nodules Sure. Um, well, the Bethesda criteria, which uh, is is fantastic, and I think it was it was um, it was overdue, uh, and it's really I think made that that standardization has really helped with surgical planning, and I think it's also helped the pathologists in terms of um, helping address uh, the um, variability between reports and the nomenclature. That is such a challenge when you would have different um, pathologists report using different terminology that um, made it a little bit difficult for you as a as a surgeon to, to plan. And so the Bethesda criteria, which is basically a numbering system, one through six, it assigns a risk of malignancy depending on what the pathologists uh, decide. And so you can, the, a one is basically a non-diagnostic um, scan or no, sorry, non-diagnostic biopsy. So there's, you'll have to redo that. So it means they don't have enough cells um, to, to make a proper assessment. And then the rest, the remaining two through six uh, go from benign through to malignant. So benign is, uh, is uh, two. And that means your risk of malignancy is less than 5%, essentially. It's very low, low risk of malignancy. And it, they'll, and at that point, obviously, you, you don't have to think about surgery. For three and four, that's where there's a lot of confusion for trainees. And I'll be honest, this is probably, if you looked at pathology papers and for thyroid, um, there's a very healthy uh, publication, um, stream of publications on a monthly basis looking at uh, cellular atypia. And so those are, and that's in a, a level three, a diagnostic category three, where you just have some atypia or you have a follicular lesion of unknown significance. So in those circumstances, the pathologists don't feel confident. They don't see enough, for example, nuclear grooving or architectural atypia within the nucleus of the, um, of the thyroid cell that they're assessing on the cytology. They don't see either in number or in, in the nature of what they see um, to call it cancer, but they do see some irregularities compared to just a normal boring, which should be benign thyroid cell with a small, tiny nucleus and, and homogeneity. They may see a bit of atypia, but they're not sure. So then in those cases, um, they'll call it an atypia of unknown significance or a follicular lesion of unknown significance. And the, the current guidelines, and there's variations on, uh, variations on this, of course, and so but I won't get into the details. Usually you, re, you can repeat the FNA 
whereas for a, a or for a Bethesda class four, as we're going up higher, that's a follicular lesion of uh, where they see um, some uh, again cellular uh, atypia, but because the um, they can't sample, as you know, cytology is just they're, they're really looking at mostly nuclear features and some other small architectural features. They can't really see um, where the sample came from. They can't determine if it's a malignancy. And so the, in those cases, when they call it a follicular lesion or follicular neoplasm, they'll ask, or they'll, the guidelines would suggest a surgical um, approach and, and a thyroid lobectomy to address whether or not that's truly a malignancy where they can look at the entire specimen, including the capsule. For five and six, those are, are um, five is suspicious for malignancy. And the reason five and six are a little bit different is that the, if you look at the studies, which have been validated over the years, have been, there have been large trials looking at lots of patients in different centers. Suspicious for malignancy, that's around a 70% chance of malignancy. And so then the guidelines are whether you do, you know, again, a lobectomy or total thyroidectomy, depending on the size of the nodule. And then, of course, uh, six is uh, pretty much... Um, 90, you know, 98, 99% uh, percent chance that it's malignant. And I've only seen, I think, in my entire career, one case where it had been called a six. And in, in the end, it wasn't uh, it wasn't malignant. And so uh, it's very rare for them to to miss that. And generally, the Bethesda criteria are fairly, um, fairly accurate and have been well, very well validated. So it's, a, it's, it's uh, especially for your two, two, five and six, those are those are um, you can hang your hat on those numbers. So just to be clear, so if you have, um, say, a follicular neoplasm, are you sending these people for a lobectomy, or uh, do these people get a total thyroid? And can you can you walk us through that a little bit? So that's going to be patient and surgeon dependent. So if we're talking about this example, for example, um, or this case, uh, for example, the uh, 50-year-old lady that had this incidental uh, uh, thyroid nodule found, and we went through the process and it was um, biopsied and the pathologist called it a Bethesda 4, then if they had no other nodules, you could... The, textbook would say you could consider them for a surgical, just a thyroid lobectomy, just a straight up lobectomy. Now, the choice between, again, if you look at the thyroid guidelines, the the 250 page, it might even be longer than that, I can't even remember, the very large um, American Thyroid Association um, guidelines, the use of um, lobectomy for diagnostic or even for known cancers um, there's there's a sort of a range in there. And so for diagnostic purposes, just about everybody does a lobectomy, there's no question. The only reason I would do something more involved uh, than a lobectomy for somebody where it's not diagnosed as cancer, but it's just a Bethesda 3 or 4, would only be if they had some other concomitant thyroid disease, if they had lots of other thyroid nodules, it was causing compressive symptoms, if they had, um, if this was a cold nodule in the context of them having um uh, Graves disease, and they had, uh, you know, they had uh, um, not, you know, Graves disease with thyroid nodules, for example. You may choose then to do a total thyroidectomy because you're addressing two different uh, problems, and may, they will want one surgery. But from just a pure diagnostic standpoint, a lobectomy is usually what you would. Um, that's a standard answer. But let's say you have a 33 year old woman, incidental thyroid nodule. Her TSH is normal. She has a 2.5 centimeter. Uh, nodule with a couple of 
uh, nodules, uh, two, two uh, 1.2 centimeter uh, nodules on the contralateral side. Do you would you offer that? I think you, you may have already kind of alluded to this, but would let's say them having some nodules on the other side would that uh, make you more or less likely to do a lobectomy? Again, this is very much a patient specific question and the other element that comes into it is their age and so this is a relatively young patient that you've just described the likelihood that if i that they will need um, synthroid or thyroid hormone replacement after doing a lobectomy uh, increases with age and so um, if somebody really wants to stay off thyroid hormone and i have the no reason to and no concern based on my uh, ultrasound assessment of those nodules on the other side um, and I was concerned for whatever reason of the larger nodule on, on the contralateral side, just the one side, I would still perform the lobectomy. So as long as those other nodules are low risk and they don't have any other disease and they're not interested in uh, or they're not concerned about a malignancy risk um, and they're happy to follow those nodules because they won't need to be followed, then a lobectomy is fine. And so you can see it's very complicated. The, de the decision for a lobectomy versus a total thyroidectomy will depend on how many nodules on the other side, how old the patient is, how concerned are they about following it, or are they, some patients, the concept of having another biopsy. And when I do the biopsies, I, and I'm being honest here, I, the patients don't tend to complain about discomfort, but if they come from other centers, uh, um, they do often, there, there may be circumstances where the biopsies are quite painful and for whatever reason, um, it, it, well, I, I know why patients, if it's uncomfortable, they don't want to go through it again. Some patients are very anxious about, about more biopsies. And so they just say, well, if there's multiple nodules, they, they, you know, they want the whole gland removed. I am definitely becoming more conservative because the literature, I think is really important, is becoming more, um, there's more evidence for the detrimental effects um, and the somewhat poor quality of life for some patients that are on thyroid hormone replacement. And so I think um, trying to keep as much native thyroid tissue as possible is, is a first principle, and you always do your best to try to do that and minimize the surgical risk. Does that answer the question? That's I hope fantastic. That's a bit that, was, that was fantastic. Um, although, <laughs> you know, we, we always like for like the, uh, the, the black and white answers, but, but, uh, you know, general surgery and, and life in general isn't in black and white. And so that was, I think that was a fantastic, uh, nuanced approach to this. I, I was hoping that you could briefly describe how you do, uh, your thyroidectomies, uh, and in particular, um, talk about some tips for, uh, identifying the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Okay. Um, so I most, and I'll give a little bit of historical context because I think it, it might be relevant there. Um, obviously, uh, you know, you try to do the smallest possible incision. Um, and typically the lower you are in the neck, most people cosmetically are happy with that. The, um, the majority of my patients are um, younger and um, obviously they're more, a little bit more concerned about the cosmetic elements of a neck incision. And so those are the kind of just general principles. Once I enter the neck, and this is pretty similar, uh, I don't do them with a robot or endoscopically, not yet anyway. I've looked at different uh, techniques uh, going through the, you know, the, uh, the bottom lip there. There's some fantastic videos. I haven't tried any of these yet, um, but doing the traditional thyroidectomy, once you divide the skin and the platysma, 
Um, I, you know, the skin incision, I will try to make very small, but the mobilization on the inside in terms of the subpatismal flaps dividing the strap muscle of the midline, I don't, I make sure I do that quite extensively because you'll, you'll need that flexibility as you move the incision around. The, when I, you know, release the thyroid capsule, and that is to say to roll that lobe out of the tracheoesophageal groove, you're going to need to address the middle thyroid vein and its tributaries. And then it becomes a choice. Now I'm going to walk you through what I do. There are different, there are different ways to, to doing it. Some people, once they release the thyroid, or once they deal with the tributaries of the thyroid, the middle thyroid vein, then some people will will look for the recurrent laryngeal nerve. I usually don't do it at that point. I usually what I will do is take the superior pole and inferior pole vessels next. So after the middle thyroid vein, it's the superior pole, then the inferior pole vessels, then continue to stay on that thyroid capsule. And I mean close to the capsule. Even after doing as many thyroids as I did in fellowship, I think it took about three more years in practice before I really honed my, you know, surgical technique to really stay as close to the capsule as possible and do everything you can to preserve the blood supply to the parathyroids, which I think is probably the more challenging part of the operation. Obviously, you don't want to cut the recurrent laryngeal nerve, but I think the more challenging technical piece is preserving parathyroid function. And certainly the rates of injury, I think, uh, in terms of hypoparathyroidism versus recurrent laryngeal nerve injury, echo that. Uh, in high volume centers, recurrent laryngeal nerve injuries aren't one to two percent they're probably much much less and so uh i think that's important to know and but hypoparathyroidism is you know still one to two percent even in high volume centers so anyway you staying on that capsule really tightly what i do is i go down to the prevertebral plane so this is uh something i think is very important i go right down to the prevertebral plane identify the esophagus and then come up and visualize between the trachea and the esophagus the tracheosophageal groove the nerve will always be there. And so that's, I always tell the, the resident trainees, especially as they're getting uh, further along in their training and have done more and more, make sure they get down to that pre-retrieval plane, then come up and then visualize, you know, with the trachea superiorly and the esophagus posteriorly, they should be able to identify that small couple millimeter region of the tracheosophageal groove. The nerve will be there. Now it may be distorted by the um, the nodules, some thyroid nodules can be posterior. The tubercle of Zucrocandle, which is that little outpouching that, that sort of extends laterally into the tracheosophageal groove, is an excellent landmark. And so you can use that because you know the nerve is close. Hopefully it's underneath it, but it doesn't have to be. Sometimes it's, it runs anterior to it. And be aware of um, nerves that bifurcate or even trifurcate. Some of the most difficult cases I've had where nerves actually trifurcated because the more anterior branches are the motor branches, the ones that actually modulate uh, the vocal folds, and the posterior branches are to the esophagus, so they're they don't have as much of an influence on the uh, on their voice, but the anterior branches do. So you have to be very careful. You stay in that capsule, come down to the tracheosophageal groove. You've landmarked it between your trachea and the esophagus there, and then you just use capsule release, and then it's just time. It's just that careful layer by layer. Um, I have, you know, I use McCabe's, I tell the residents, I always point the McCabe's in the expected direction and just do small, you know, openings. And and uh, at that point, once you find the nerve, I do trace it at that point fully right into the uh, cricothyroid muscle, uh, releasing the thyroid capsule as you go. I don't think there's ever been, and I've sometimes spent a long time uh, finding a nerve that was ultimately a long way from the thyroid, and I easily could have taken out the thyroid um, 
without even looking for the nerve, but I'd never do that. I always look for the nerve and, uh, you know, finish my capsule release and then divide the tissue and the leg berry. Sometimes I use a lot of ligature device. Uh, that's, that's just my personal tool. I'll put a wet dental right under the ligature device so I can get as close as I can to make sure I don't leave any thyroid behind. Do you use any adjuncts like a nerve stimulator? Excellent question. The technology when I started was um, not great. Um, I don't use it now unless it's a very difficult uh, redo scenario. And I do lots of, um, you know, um, scenarios with advanced metastatic disease or locally invasive disease um, and where I have to, you know, explore, explore, release the nerve. And I traditionally, because of my volume, I've always felt comfortable um, in most cases not using um, uh, nerve monitoring. And in the rare case I do use it, it's usually the third or fourth time in for somebody that's had unfortunate uh, recurrence. Gotcha. Um, I, I did want to ask you about the mini or the lateral mini incisions for thyroidectomy because I, I've seen that you, you've done some uh, some research on that as well. Is that something that you do? Um, or, and uh, can you can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's that's a technique I learned in Sydney, and that was something that they had worked on extensively was the the lateral incision. The idea. From or the the idea of that um, approach is that you can use a smaller incision. The goal again is to make your skin incision as small as possible, and so uh, the lateral approach allows you to find the nerve um, uh, quickly. And so whether it's for parathyroid surgery, for example, or if you're going to do a, a minimum invasive hemithyroidectomy and you want to do a really small incision, you can come. You can use that lateral approach because. Uh, it allows you to, there's less manipulation you find the nerve, but you, you have to be very, very experienced because you do come on the nerve very quickly, very quickly. And so you have to know your anatomy very well. It's not something that I would do, um, you know, you wouldn't do that as your, the first thing you would teach. It's something that you only do once you have a better or an excellent understanding of anatomy because you don't have the exposure uh, that you do. It's obviously the incisions are smaller, so you don't have that context. You have to know exactly where you are um, at all times. And it's it's a nice approach, absolutely. I don't, again, do it uh, quite as often as I did in Sydney. Um, it works better for patients with smaller necks, smaller nodules. Once the nodules start getting, uh, getting higher or larger than uh, three or four centimeters, I do tend to go with the midline approach. Right on. Um, I did want to ask a question that that perhaps is aimed a little bit more towards our uh, junior trainees who might be listening to the podcast, and that's about post-operative calcium because I think we've we've all been there, kind of in the middle of the night, getting calls about calciums on a post-op thyroid patient or or the or the patient that's having some oral numbness. Can you uh, talk about what your approach is for these patients uh, from a post-operative standpoint, particularly with regards to the calcium? Uh, and, sure, and, sure. Yeah, no, that, I think uh, the fun part about this is that um, if, if a thousand people, a thousand surgeons were to listen to this, this part of the talk, I'm sure you'd get a thousand, you know, there'd be a thousand different comments on, on my approach versus um, other, other surgeons. My personal approach, I think, and again, and so that's why I, I want to preface these comments is that it's highly variable among lots of high volume surgeons. Um, excellent surgeons. Uh, they do different things, even in my own center compared to what I do. But what I do 
because a lot of my patients are from up north, um, they're from geographically um, disparate regions where they're not always close to a hospital, my approach has been to first, I think everybody would get a, a post-operative PTH, usually within an hour or so of surgery. You get it within in the recovery room, usually before they, they go to the day surgery unit or to their uh, inpatient unit if you're going to keep them overnight. Um, once that PTH is there, I look at the number and I look at the PTH number and I look at the calcium. For patients where I, where for some reason the parathyroids aren't working um, or you've inadvertently removed some or all of them, uh, which of course obviously is almost never happens, but uh, obviously where they don't work, they may be left behind but are not working properly. Um, under those circumstances, the PTH will be undetectable. And for patients that really have very little parathyroid hormone, usually the, even within an hour of surgery, their calcium will drop very quickly and precipitously. So for patients that have low PTH and very low calcium, I immediately start vitamin D and um, uh, supplemental calcium. And again, there's multiple different ways you can give it. I just use Tums because it's easy to chew and it's something that most uh, patients don't mind taking large volumes of. The hospital pills, calcium pills are large, hard to swallow and uh, not very palatable. The... On the other end of the spectrum, if their PTH is normal and their calcium, uh, most calcium levels will decrease a little bit uh, during surgery, even just part of the physiologic response to surgery. The, but if it's in the normal or, or close to normal range, I won't start vitamin D, but I give everybody usually two weeks of calcium post-op, just on spec. So I'll give them one gram BID for two weeks. So usually it ends up being two pills twice a day for two weeks, everybody. Um, in particular for Graves patients, even if their PTH um, and calcium levels are near normal, for reasons that I don't fully understand, but it is documented in the literature, they're more likely to experience the symptoms of hypocalcemia, even with small decreases in calcium levels. And so that helps to ameliorate those, um, those concerns for the patients. Um, and I do a lot of patients with thyrotoxicosis. And so I found that that's very valuable there. Um, and I only use Rocaltrol or, or vitamin D, supplementary vitamin D, when their PTH is undetectable. And so then, and, and you will titrate that up. It, the, the, um, way pharmacologically to give Rocaltrol is every six hours, but usually I don't give it four times a day. At most, I'll give it uh, twice or three times a day for people that perhaps have profound hypocalcemia, but that's, uh, generally, rare and most of the time I just give BID Rocaltrol for a couple of weeks until their parathyroid hormone uh, levels recover. So are you keeping people overnight and then checking their calciums or is that PTH and calcium that you get initially enough for you to go on and, and uh, potentially discharging people home? Uh, for 90% of people that's all I do. Uh, if their cal PTH and calcium levels are quite low um at the time, or post, just in the immediate post-op period, I may order repeat blood work in about six hours. Not a repeat PTH. I just order a calcium level just to see how low it's going to go. Most patients I don't keep overnight anymore. Most patients go home the night of surgery. Some patients I'll keep overnight on our sort of, we have a short stay um, unit where they can go home first thing in the morning. Um, but most patients will leave the same the same day before midnight. Um, and I will only get repeat blood work if I think their calcium is, if their PTH is undetectable and I'm worried that they um, will have problems with hypocalcemia. That's, that's perfect. That's exactly the, the kind of overview I was looking for. 
Um, I did want to ask you about one more thing, uh, I think, before we sort of wrap wrap this up, and that is the role of lymph node dissection, because that's another thing that sort of seems to come up. Um, is Are there any scenarios where you are uh, are doing a prophylactic lymph node dissection? Uh, and in my mind, I think that's sort of in the the medullary thyroid cancer, but but correct me if I'm wrong. And then, and, and who are you doing, um, you know, a therapeutic dissection on as well? Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, the easiest one is the therapeutic. I think there'd be very little debate among surgeons around the world if there are um, palpable um, nodule, you know, uh, lymph node metastases, or if there are substantial deposits of disease on ultrasound that are greater than one centimeter um, that are clearly visualized, I think there's no question about the value um, in under those circumstances. Prophylactic dissections are still highly variable. Um, and even in my experience in Alberta, which it's quite fun to put, you know, you'd think Edmonton and Calgary would be similar, but there's, it's like there's a magic line in Red Deer. Things happen north of Red Deer different and south of Red Deer can be different. And so the, even in Alberta, there are different um, approaches. And it depends a lot on the, on the tumor board, the local tumor board. And at our, and the Cross Cancer Institute, where our tumor board is, um, a lot of, it's not just um, the surgeon in this, for myself or the, my patient that, you know, I will, will make the decision. It's the consideration of what the tumor board will want. Um, and in my center, uh, even microscopic, that is to say, uh, less than one centimeter deposits of, of thyroid cancer, if identified in ultrasound, would be considered. It would be considered reasonable to uh, to, to carry out uh, a lymph node dissection. That's not always the case, depending on the center. And so, for me, um, um, uh, and working in a center where we're a little bit more aggressive in the use of of lymph node uh, dissections, prophylactically or otherwise. I will do prophylactic dissections for patients that have abnormal lymph nodes uh, on ultrasound, even if they're relatively small. If they do not have, and I ultrasound them myself every case, both at the time of clinic and then at the time of surgery, which hopefully isn't too far apart, but that uh, unfortunately can vary certainly in our current uh, our current uh, COVID-19 scenario where some patients are having to wait longer for surgery than I would like. Um, when I do ultrasound them at the time of surgery, if I do see abnormalities in the lymph nodes uh, based on their morphogenic, uh, you know, what they look like on ultrasound, either in, in terms of size or morphology, I will intervene with a prophylactic dissection. If I don't see anything, I typically do not unless it's a really high risk scenario. If there's a patient with a very large four or five centimeter um, primary tumor and I'm concerned about multifocal disease, where I think they have multiple deposits within the thyroid. Um, there's evidence for intrathyroidal spread in some cases. Under those circumstances, I will perform a prophylactic lymph node dissection at level six. So I'm sorry, I wish I could make the answer black and white for you, but there's a bit more gray area there too. You've been listening to Cold Steel the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at 
Can J Surge. Thanks again.